0: Yay! This was a recitation of the word of the Lord. Thank you, Matthew. Uh-huh. So, yes. So as, as Paul has completed this fantastic hymn, I mean, he just laid some sweetness on us. Uh, There in verses 6 through 11, as he talks about the great Christ hymn that so, I think, captivates us and encourages us in who it is that Jesus is. And in the midst of that, though, he does kind of end the hymn with a little bit of perhaps sobering idea. In that he says, not only has God exalted Jesus to the very highest place, and not only will, will, will every tongue confess, but also at some point... And you can pay me now or pay me later. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. And while that's an, I think, a real aspirational and inspiring statement. It's also a little bit frightening. Because it does mean that perhaps now you've already bowed your knee. In complete submission. I no longer live for myself, but for him, my Lord. But for those who have not done that. The day will come. When they will have their knees bent, uh, whether they want to or not, as they appear before the judgment seat. Uh, And that's a a really kind of an awesome, in, in the very precise sense of the word awesome, it's an awesome concept that one day we will all appear before the judgment seat of this Christ that has just been portrayed and exalted before us in this hymn that we studied out last week. And so he begins then, therefore... My dear friends. And now here's what's really terrific about the depth of love between Paul and the church. The real chummy kinship between Paul, who's been continually supported by this church, continually encouraged by this church, and continually pouring himself out for the advancement of this church. And he's doing so right now that he, he doesn't begin with and, yo, get it together, right? I mean, it, it, it's not that type of an attitude here. He, he uses one of the most precious statements, my dear loved ones. He's already said, I, I love you so much, it it makes my spleen hurt. Like that, that's the love I have for you. I'm so grateful, so appreciative. If I have a chance to break out into song and praise to, to God for you, I do it. I mean, that's kind of chapter one. And, and now he reiterates, hey, I, I just—we we just looked at Christ in the most magnificent way. And now, my dear friends... You always obey. And I know that's being. You always obey. You do. You're obedient. You got that down. You're an obedient church. You obeyed when I was around. And you know what? Even when I'm not around, I don't know, but I'm assuming you do. But make sure that you do. And that's kind of how he begins this next section. My dear friends As you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And this may be preparing them a little bit, too, that his absence may be permanent because he's writing this from a prison and chances are, and they probably are the case, that he will be persecuted to his death. Head chopped off, by the way. Uh, and they're going to have to get used to that. And But they're a church that doesn't need the power of a personality for them to continue in their walk with Jesus Christ. And as I've said, the Philippian church has so many parallels to our church. And many people ask for, from uh, you know, kind of around the world, hey, what is it about the Hampton Roads Church and one thing that I always say is that, you know, the Hampton Roads Church doesn't, doesn't matter. It's plug and play who serves in the ministry here. Because the, the, you know, Paul and Kim, Kevin and Kai, Steve Hale, Howard Henry, Bill and Tana, they were obeying way before Mike Fontenot or Deb Anton ever arrived here. They're going to obey way beyond any of that. God forbid that we ever leave, by the way. Uh, but, but it doesn't, it does not matter. You know, because the culture that has already worked its way through this church, the foundation of this church has always been one of joyful obedience. And likewise here in the Philippian church, it's a church where it was built on soldiers. And likewise, we have a a culture around us that one is of, of military. But Paul wants them not just to kind of keep on marching orders, but to step back and reflect that obedience is great. But sometimes it's good to look at what's behind that obedience for us. And in, in, in this is a little bit of what he begins to do. And these next two verses are so difficult. 12 and 13. At, at first flush, you might think, Nah, not so difficult. Matt just rattled them off. No, they're easy to say. Not that easy to say. You know, it's God who works in you to will and to work in order for his purpose. I mean, that's not the easiest concept to get your mind around. But the, the tension of these two juxtaposed verses, juxtaposed means they're next to each other, Uh, of of these two verses right here, the tension between these two ideas of get to work on your salvation, oh, by the way, any of this work that you do, it's only because God works in you, not only to get you going, but to actually want you, to get you to want to actually do the work. So it's all him, and it's all according to his big plan and his big pleasure. Like, that's a difficult thing to reconcile, no? No? Between all of that. And the thing that is interesting and even more difficult is that then he says, work out this salvation of yours. Like, well, aren't we already saved? Uh, Where where do we stand right now? Do I have insecurity that should be kind of gripping me right now and getting me to step in line or else, whap, I'm I'm, I'm, no longer going to be in the good graces of God. All of that is inherent in these verses. So it's not a a very easy thing. That's why we're only handling two verses. And frankly, I was going to do a lot more verses, but Matt grabbed me before the service and said, can we just limit it to two? Because I'd really like to be able to recite a couple verses. So I was like, all right, fine. I'm going to throw out my notes. We'll just go with these two verses. And you just bring it, brother, as soon as we go. And I'll act surprised that you raise your hand and that you want to do this. Uh, But let's just begin. There's a lot of questions that we're going to tackle because there's so much tension in these passages. The first question is salvation. Is this thing, is this a past thing? Is it a present thing? Is it a future thing? And here's the part that is a little bit unnerving to us is that the Bible speaks of it in all those ways. But that's not tidy and that's not familiar to us. Familiar is, I've been saved. Hallelujah. I've been saved. Bring it on. Whatever, whatever, you know, goes on from here. And we think of it chiefly, if not predominantly or only, as a past tense uh, occasion in our lives. Uh, however, there's good reason for that. For example, we just recently studied out the book of Ephesians. Just got done with that. And one of my favorite verses in all the Bible is Ephesians 2.8. But because of his great love with which he loved us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Actually, that's my favorite verse. But what I wanted to read is verse 8. Uh, for it is by grace... You have been saved. Boom. Period in time. Definitive done activity. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, gift of God. Right? That does not sound like a future event. It does not sound like we're waiting around. Uh, so is it going to happen? No, it's already happened. Right? I mean, that can't be more clear. There's no weird grammar underneath this that makes you think, oh, that's why. No, it is as it sounds. English, Greek, Whatever. You have been saved. But how about, I could go to plenty of verses, interestingly. I'm going to go to the end of Romans and and read a passage from Romans 13. And there the Bible reads in verse 11, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. What in the world? What do you mean? It's the Romans book, right? Romans is all about me feeling good and God is good all the time and He works all things together for good and I can take security. What, what, are, you, what are you doing to me here, Paul? Now that the letter ends, you're gonna throw this my way? My salvation is almost there? Now how do, how do I make sense of all of that? If, if you want to kind of look at a, a chapter in the Bible that speaks of it as past, present, and future when you get another chance, not during the sermon right now, I know you're doing a lot of other things so I wouldn't want to distract you from whatever that is. Uh, but but maybe, maybe you could read 1 Peter chapter 1. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, it actually mentions this inheritance, this deliverance, this salvation that is ours in past, present, and future. So I lay all that out, but but really, how is it that we can kind of wrap our minds around it? Here's here's a way that I think helps us to kind of conceptualize all that's going on here. Salvation is, yes, for sure, an event that has occurred, if indeed it has occurred in your life. And if the Holy Spirit has interceded, flung open your eyes, convicted you to the core, brought you to repentance, that so you've been amazed and you've been born again of water and spirit, and all that that God has has in store for you, yes, that has the, that is the case, and wonderful, sealed and guaranteed, that is who who you are. Uh, but it's not all that will ever happen because we're not just saved for for this state right now because. There is such an overwhelming, amazing promise of the age to come that the Bible then speaks of that deliverance as something that is yet to come. You're, you're just staged right now, but you're staged correctly. Let's say, for example, let me use the analogy that um, the, the, the space shuttle or let's say Elon Musk or the Russians, you know, begin to kind of let common folk like us uh, onto space travel. Right. We, we get to go to the moon. And, and we're gonna to go to the moon, and you're one of the lucky ones. As a matter of fact, not just you, but, but, but your whole neighborhood. You're the lucky ones that got picked to be an example of those that are gonna to go to the moon. And, and so they kind of bring you in, they interview you, and sure enough, you all get the golden ticket. To the moon, Alice. To the moon. No idea what that was. But, <laughs> but, so you, you got, you, you got your ticket to the moon! You've received your ticket. It's already yours. It's in your possession. Your name, your serial number, it's legit. And it's really the case. But, well, while, while that's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I've been chosen. I've been picked. I've been called and I've been secured to, to kind of be queued up now for, for when that shuttle is ready to launch. And, and it's really the case that that salvation is yours. Your deliverance to the moon is, is really there. But, At some point in time, you're actually going to go to the moon. And isn't that such a big event that that could be referred to as the real fulfillment of all of that? And and so that's kind of what we have in view here is that because, yes, you're you're at the kind of the, you know, you're at Cape Canaveral and you got a cool life and it's all going on. But you're not yet at the moon. And and that's kind of the Philippian church. Yeah, you know, you've been called out. You're now a colony of heaven. You you have been called out and, and you are queued up, ready to, to be the kind of the, the, the great exemplars of what the age to come is going to be. But that ain't nothing compared to when God comes down to earth. All things are made new. Uh, the new Jerusalem comes down and whatever all that that's going to entail will be will be so fantastic that that's really deliverance. Yeah, you got some good deliverance right now. But you know what? It's still a fallen world. And, and that's where you live. But 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 nonetheless, this is what we're waiting for. So that's that's why the Bible will speak in in variety of of tenses regarding salvation itself. And so, in, in a sense, what he's saying to to, to them, uh, get back to Philippians two. What he's saying to them here is that you've got you've got salvation. It's yours, but yet it's still to come. And so now, as you prepare, prepare through the life that you live to continually align yourself with the pleasure of God, uh, express the fact that you are a colony of heaven right now in the way that you live your lives. In light of the fact that every knee is going to bow and that your knee has already bowed, well, live your lives now as though you really have bowed your knee to Christ, as though you really have said with your tongue, not Caesar is Lord, not I am Lord, but Jesus is Lord. And if that's the community of people that you are, well, then work it out that that is the way that you live your lives. And that's this this present salvation that we continue to work out. Um, and But to do so, and I'm going to save the fear and trembling part for a minute because I think it will help us to make sense between the, the, the two concepts sort of laid out here. But it, it does sound as though Paul is saying, you got to get this on. You work it out. But then he says right afterwards, and by the way, you know, it is God. Who does the work, not only does the work, but but actually gets you to want to even do the work. The very fact that you have an appetite for this God will stuff is is only because of God. The the phrase there in verse 13, for it is God who works in you. By the way, the word work is used three times in this passage. To to the Philippians, work out your salvation. That's used there. Uh, same, Same essence of the word, because it's God who works. And then he says, in you, not only to to desire, to will is the same word as to desire. He he works in you to give you the, the desires, but then he also works in you to work. He uses work again. So the NIV, just to create a little bit of less confusion, uses the word act here. But it's to, to work. Why? Because we're fulfilling his good, pleasing, and perfect will. His good pleasure. So on the one hand, you, know, you, 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 you kind of get stuck with kind of sloganeering with with uh, the, the contrast of these two. This is not sloganeering. This is the word of God. Work out your own salvation. It's God who works in you. Oh, which is it? Because on one side, we can become arrogant. On the other side, we can become passive As as how we look at that. Here's some of the ways that we've made sense of this with bumper sticker theology. Uh, God helps those who help themselves. In other words, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the way that people have made sense of that is God helps, God helps those who help themselves. This, by the way, is not in the Bible and nor is it sound doctrine because really all that it is, it's an activism on our part and it's active, praise God for that. But it only admits the need for a little boost or a little leg up here or there when I and my greatness happen to stumble now and again. Uh, And that we only need this little small subsidy from God. But Paul actually teaches the absolute necessity for the empowering presence of God not only to do any work, but to actually even want to do any work. And here's the beauty of of what Paul is saying here. God hooks you up, not only with this salvation, this new life, and this new community, but he actually gives you the power through the Spirit to be able to do what it is that he commands. And moreover... Through his ongoing sanctification, as the Spirit is shaping who you are, what you want, what are your appetites, you're also, through the Spirit of God, through the work of God, you're actually having your will shaped. Not just your obedience, but you actually have your desires shaped in your ongoing maturity in Christ by the very Holy Spirit of God. How cool is that? In other words, God is basically saying to you, you've been saved by grace, and now do what you want. But what you want is being shaped by the very Holy Spirit that fulfills my good pleasure. How cool is that? And who doesn't want to continually progress to that very place where, how cool is this? I actually want to read my Bible. And I know I should. So the ought and the wants are coming together. This is a good morning. But over time, and now the other... The other side of this is, sounds very religious. You know what? You just need to let go and let God. And it sounds very good, but I imagine like my grandmother saying that a bit more than I imagine Daniel Reese saying that. Uh, just let go and let God. Uh, really let go and let God. It's kind of this idea of let's, let's just get yourself out of the way so that God can work. But what does that promote? Passivism. But at the heart of it, is this dire question that has been the throw-down number one issue in all of Christian history and all of theology. And that is, how do we reconcile that we have free will and that God is absolutely sovereign and has perfect foreknowledge? Right? Now, I'll talk about this in a minute, and I'm going to get terribly nerdy in just a minute. So, my apologies. I know you're going to complain to your parents again. Yeah, I'm just setting you up again. But, but 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 here's the deal. If God already knows all the chapters of your life before they're even written, Psalm 139, then do you really have free will? Or are you just a puppet that is being manipulated all along the way because those chapters are already written? And and do I just think that I decided to say that to you? That I think that I have free will? to ask you if you think that you have free will. But this is already written. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to completely blow up the script right now and I'm going to break dance for all of you. That can't be written in the book of life, right? And it isn't, so I can't do it right now. <laughs> we, we can get as absurd as we want and you can always say, oh yeah, yeah but God, it, it's, it's already written. Um, and, and so this this poses this incredibly difficult issue and an attention that is very difficult to resolve uh, so much so that the great debate throughout throughout church history um, has has been waged and it, and it first began in earnest with these two guys and this is like pay-per-view throwdown of theological champions back around the the year 420 um, and and at this time The the church, by the way, had started to grow very lax in their obedience. And Augustine was one of the leading figures and the great scholars of the uh, early 5th century church. And he had a prayer that had become a very popular prayer among the the Christian population. And the prayer was, may God grant that which he commands and may he command that which he wills. Sounds nice, right? But kind of look at this. May he grant everything that he commands. So let's let's say that this is this is for Joey here and Joey's praying, God, come on, give me the ability to do what you want me to do and, and work it out that it happens. And also make sure that you command and, and make it clear to me everything that is according to your will. So, God, please make it clear what you want me to do. And then not only that, but man, make me do it. Give it to me, God. Give me the ability to do what it is that you're telling me to do. That, in essence, is Augustine's prayer. Now, it, it sounds nice in a lot of levels. It's, it's not so terrible. But in a church that has grown lax, they start praying this prayer. Like, well, I guess God didn't grant it to me. So, pass the ale. Uh, more wine, more women, more song. Until God, of course, grants me the ability to be able to rise above these little picadillos that have so plagued me in my life. Piccadillo is a word for like a little sin. There's no such thing as a little sin, by the way. I was play acting as though I was a fifth century lax, lapsed Christian. <laughs> that was what was going on there. Anyway, this other monk, who's kind of a rigorous guy, uh, he observes the moral laxity that really came upon the church uh, at the end of the 300s, beginning of the 400s. And then on top of that, he hears this stinking Augustine prayer. And he's like, that's what's wrong with the church today is everybody's just getting soft. Whatever happens, just good old-fashioned obedience. God said it clear enough. We do it. That's the end of the day. That's my theology. And, and, and so Pelagius had a, a, a kind of a more basic approach to Christianity. If I ought to do it, well, then I can do it. Because God's not going to command me to do something that I cannot do. So he's not going to kind of tell me to climb a mountain if I can't climb that mountain. He's not going to tell me not to look at pornography if I can't look at pornography. He's not going to tell me to share my faith if I can't share my faith. Right, and that was Pelagius. Now, here's the difficulty with Pelagius, because a lot of me is like, come on, Pelagius. Come on, stir that stuff up, rather than just kind of put your feet up and wait for God to do something. Is that Pelagius did not just stop there. Pelagius actually said that when Adam sinned, it had no impact on God's creation. And that we have just as much ability to obey God as Adam did. Not only that, but he says that people have free will, for sure, and I think everybody's affirmed that up until Augustine, he, he gets beyond that. Uh, people have the free will to choose good or evil, and in fact, they can. And that the only way that we need Jesus is because he's a really good example to show us the way. And if every now and again we do our best and we obey, we obey, we obey, but then we're getting ready to falter. Well, then God can kind of jump in with a little bit of a booster shot to help us from time to time. And that was Pelagius. And I think probably me. I mean, when I replayed, I'm like, oh, like, I think that's the way I've gone about my Christianity for a good decade or two. Uh, But before being able to really be washed by the gospel. Washed by the gospel of the grace of God, and how empowering it is to, to recognize that it is not just if it ought, if it is to be, it is up to me. You know those ten two-word statements. If it is to be, it is up to me, because that's kind of the Pelagian approach to, to Christianity, uh, and so we we get stuck then with this great tension, which, which is. And, and then Augustine went so far after Pelagian said this. Now the pendulum starts to you know do some wild swings. And after every heresy, there's an equal and opposite heretical reaction to this thing. And this is when is introduced into the church really for the first time. didn't happen for the 400 years prior or the 300 years prior where we have a lot of early Christian writings. But it's the first time where it's introduced into the church the idea that man is so totally depraved he can't do a thing if it's not for God intervening, making you alive, regenerating you, and then only after you've been regenerated by the divine intervention of God, only then can you have faith. You understand the depth of what that, that is. That, that means that a passage like um, Peter saying to the unregenerate there in, in, in Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Augustine would say that really they can't do that unless they're born again prior. They can't do that. And so for an Augustinian, because we're such a mess in Adam's sin, and we're so incapable, all we can do is just hope that we're part of those that God has chosen. And by the way, this, this goes on further in that line of theology, that God chooses some of you from the beginning of the world to actually respond to his message and be reborn, and some of you to not, and to be predestined for eternal damnation. Predestined for eternal heaven. Enjoy. Congratulations. Predestined. Before you said a thing. Before the foundation of the world. Predestined to have torment in flames. Forever and ever. That's, that, that's where you end up having to go. When, when you kind of have the, the other side of this approach. That it's all God. It's all God. We can't do a thing. And so there's a a terrible dilemma that occurs in the midst of all of that. And you can see why it's a lot easier to embrace Pelagius. But if you embrace Pelagius completely, then you end up embracing a path of arrogance and a path of self-sufficiency, a very path that Paul has just kind of bombed, carpet bombed with, with saying, do nothing, nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit In humility. Consider all others before yourselves. Now, Pelagian says, well, I do do that. Out of my own strength, I, I do do those very things. And, and here, sadly, is that a lot of us can be so Pelagian and honestly so narcissistic of thinking highly of ourselves that we think, but I do rely completely on God. Well, that's a, that's a frightening place to end up as well. And that's why kind of the key to all of this is what Paul says in the middle of this, fear and trembling. Yeah. A... It is the very attitude and posture that all of us need to have whenever we appear before the Holy God. What is in view right now? What is in view is Jesus, who made himself nothing for our sake, humbled himself, became obedient, even to death on a cross. God exalted him to the highest places. And not only that, but every tongue confess in heaven, on earth, under the earth, that Jesus is is Lord and and that every knee will bow. Uh, And... And that's in view. Salvation is in view. And one other thing is in view. Doing the will of God. Just every day doing the will of God. If we go about that with, I got this. Or, you know what? I've done this before. No no big deal. Then it's very easy just to become Pelagian in our approach. Uh, and Or it could be that I'm so overwhelmed and, and so self-piteous and really uh, so falsely religious that I can't do anything unless God motivates me. I can't get out of this sin unless God sends the lightning bolt to deliver me. And all we do is we wait for some intrinsic motivation that is sent by direct delivery from the throne of God to our heart without any mediation in between and, and all of a sudden, only then, will we actually do the work of God. Now, all of this, all of this are, that, are the ways that you err. It's the ways that everybody has erred in the history of Christianity. So how do we avoid the pacifism of one side and the arrogant activism on the other? I, I think that the way that, we, the, the way that I try to make sense of this is that I take nothing for granted of what I get to do in Christ. When I walk into Burger King... I no longer take for granted the fact that I'm in here and I'm actually looking around for somebody that might be fertile soil to hear the word of God. Like I really do. And I'm not just, oh, look at me. But it really is the case. Like God has so shaped my appetites and desires. I walk into Burger King and that's the very first thing that I'm looking for. Is is that person look open or, you know, are they engaged in conversation? Can I walk over to their table, maybe make a mention of, 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 of Jesus, see if they're interested in learning more about him? You know, I I don't want to do that cavalierly uh, because then I can suddenly become Pelagian. The fact that I have that ought to cause me to tremble before a holy God. I love what somebody said last week. Maybe it was um, uh, Tim that, you know, C.S. Lewis, when he when he speaks of God in fiction and and they they ask, is he safe? And, you know, and, and of course, the dialogue goes on. Oh, no, he's not safe, but he is good. And that's that's what we've got to recognize as well. We do not trifle with God. We do not trifle in our activities that are in alignment with his good pleasure and will. That these things are not to be done in some sort of a thoughtless manner. But that we are aligning ourselves with the very will of the creator of all things. Like, whoa, the the awe that should attend to that. As we stand or fall in awe at at the very thought of these things and, and align ourselves with the will of God. And the very fact that I, whether I sit down and talk to somebody about Jesus and that Burger King or just the very fact that I actually want to do that, I realize this has been shaped by God because there was none of that in me before the Holy Spirit disrupted my walk. If anything, beforehand, sadly, but before the Holy Spirit had shaped me and so changed me and brought me to repentance and changed all of my my appetites and allegiances and agenda, The, the very thing that I would have looked at in there is like, Hey, I wonder if there's a way to hook up in this place. I wonder if there's a girl that's good looking in this place. Like, that was the nastiness of who I was before God. And to now, instead of going and saying, Hey, I wonder if there's any, like, you know, kind of s- sweet girls in this place, to, Oh, I-, I wonder if there's any sort of, you know, open, open people here for the gospel of Christ. That's a world of difference. That should make my knees tremble. Like, this is the product of a God who wills and works in me for, for his good pleasure. Thank you, God. And, and anything that we do, even as we get up in the morning for something as simple as opening up the word of God to, to be astounded that this is the, the very thing that, that we're able to do um, and that we do so according to his good pleasure. You know, as, as Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house... This is Psalm 127.1. The the builders labor in vain. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. I think if I'm going up to that person in Burger King in and of my own steam, you know what's going to happen at the end of that? Not much. But if I'm like, wow, this is God really initiating and completing all of this that I'm in alignment with the holy, pleasing will of God, usually then something much more can happen than just a a vain activity on my part. I love the prayer of Psalm 90, verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. What a great prayer. Whatever it is that we put our hand to do, whether it is getting up to marvel at the law, the word of God, whether it's to be able to even approach the throne of grace, whether it's to offer encouragement or counsel or to receive such things from brothers and sisters. Wow, what an amazing honor it is for us. And as soon as we become ungrateful or thoughtless about all of these things is usually the day that we, we drift into Pelagianism and just try to get some stuff done on our own. And then we get scared by that and think, oh, I should rely on God. And then we become passive. It's usually the path, right? Yes, I'm in alignment with the will of God. I got this. Oh, I'm so arrogant. I'm going to do nothing and wait for God to, to, to you know, kind of save me from all of this. It, it, it's, it's a repeated cycle again and again and again. Fear and trembling to, to keep that before us. Realize I have A divine appointment in what it is that I'm doing here. Now, you may say, yeah, that sounds good, but I don't know if I can keep all of that up. Well, you can't. You can't. And the reason that you're even anguishing about all of this is because you don't know that you're a fish in water right now. In other words, you don't know that you are an American breathing the very air of individualism. And everything that you've just processed and what I've said, and and I've purposely been vague in that, but everything that you've just processed, you've processed only for yourself. And there is nothing in chapter 1, verse 27... Through 2 verse 18. It's a one section of scriptures, one big thought, 127 through 218. Go back and read it again, just to try to bust up the preconceptions of individualism that impress themselves upon the text and upon your understanding of it, and, and to recognize that this is all you all work out this salvation. All you all together have a fear and trembling in what it is that you collectively are doing. For the Lord. You, community of faith. Be amazed that it is God. God who works through the Philippian church. God who has infused and worked through the Hampton Roads church. Not only to get us to do what we need to do by the power of his Holy Spirit. But to actually collectively get us to want to do these very things. It is God. And and guess what? When when we do it as the body of Christ. Then you can do it a hundred times out of a hundred. Yeah, there may be moments where you're going to want to wriggle away because of our own passions. But when when we really do come together and we receive the benefits of what it is to live as community, as Paul has said, to live as one man, to to work shoulder to shoulder, to have the same purpose, the same heart, the same love, and the same thinking or mindset, uh, one with another, in complete unity, as does Christ Jesus, then this doesn't suddenly become such a mountain to climb. And if you're going about your Christianity as a lone ranger, well, then, yes, you should be overwhelmed by this passage to the to the worst of all degrees. But if you're doing this in community, you realize again and again, I, you know what? It's not so hard to pray together. I love it when we get together and pray. It's astounding. Somebody in a lot of times I'm not doing it, but somebody else picks it up. Or even When we go out and we, we share about Jesus you know, in the last few times when we've done that together on Saturdays, you know, a lot of people are wearing their blue shirts. And you're saying, you see all your brothers and sisters out there, you know, kind of bringing it, bringing it to, to to the harvest according to God's great pleasure. To know that it's so pleasing to God that we're doing his will, that how exciting it is to be able to be part of that. Now, in my individualism, when I'm driving there, I'm like, oh, man, I wonder how long this is going to take and... You know, is is Kirk going to make us go for two hours? I don't know. (laughs) know, But then when I'm there, suddenly in community with the Spirit of Christ really, really directing us in community, it's it's a complete difference. And again, if you want to know really how it is that the tension of this passage can be resolved, well then, number one, never take The work of God for granted. But let it cause your knees to tremble. And secondly. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. You may have moments of success. But when you do any of this alone. Christianity is not an individual sport. It is a team sport. Uh, Along with those who call on the Lord. With a pure heart. uh, Is the great call to Timothy. So my final charge here. Work out with one another. Work out with another Christian this week. Work out. He says work out your salvation. But work out being the very colony of heaven. Here in Hampton Roads. Work that out in your expression. Of God's love in you. Work that out with another Christian this week. But before you do. Pray together through these verses. Pray through 12 and 13. Pray that you would have a fear and trembling attitude. Before you go about whatever this activity is that you've been called to work out. And know that what you're doing is according to God's good pleasure. You have aligned yourself with the sovereign. The king of kings and the lord of lords. You've aligned yourself and you've caused him great pleasure. By by doing this together. When, When you have all of that come together oh my goodness, that's only self-reinforcing and it only breeds more and more excitement of what it is that we get to do for Jesus. Amen. Thanks.